1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tala. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Guy Beiner, author of the book, The Forgotten and Unforgotten Spanish Flu of 1918-1919, Pandemic Reawakenings. Hello, Professor.
0: Hello. It's great to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
0: Well, I'm an Israeli historian uh, currently in the States in Boston at Boston College. Uh, before that, uh, I've been for many years an historian at Ben-Gurion University in the south of Israel in Be'er Sheva, in the desert region. And I specialize, of all things, in Irish history. Um, I have My area of expertise as an historian is the history of memory in the modern period, uh, memory and forgetting. And I've always had, for a long time, an interest in the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 because I was always puzzled how such an event with such enormity um, seemed to have been forgotten or isn't remembered prominently or doesn't feature prominently in history books. Now I'm saying this. For years, meaning since I was a student, I've been asking these questions. And originally, I remember I just finished my PhD about twenty years ago, and I proposed a big project on this on this subject exactly. And people weren't interested in it at the time. Um, it didn't seem to be a subject. It seemed to be something minor to many people um, when I was working on it originally. And I moved on to other things. I had lots of other projects related to do related to history and forgetting, especially in Ireland. And um, I, I proposed it again in 2003. Again, it wasn't a big thing for people. Um, and since then, in the 20 years since then, I've noticed growing interest in this topic, particularly as through the 2000s, people became aware that there might be another pandemic approaching. The scientists, particularly. They had this awareness of pandemic preparedness, I'd call it. Um, And the whole field of pandemic history slowly emerged. This current project behind the book began towards the centenary, the centennial year of, of, of the Spanish flu. And it was supposed to come to fruition in 2018. This is all before COVID. There was interest in the world in the topic, but still more limited. And then suddenly, in 2020, there was this explosion of interest. And by chance, my book was ready, which is quite remarkable. It still took a while for it to come out. I was working with um, researchers around the world on the topic, uh, on the memory and forgetting of Spanish flu. And we were supposed to have the book ready by March 2020. And just then, COVID broke out. There was a huge demand um, For people to get information on the topic. At the same time, we couldn't fact check many of the information because the archives were closed. So suddenly the topic kind of grew on us even though we were prepared for it. Um, And I should note that I realized at an early stage that to address this project properly, it can't be an individual project. It has to be a group project. If I want to do it on a global scale, and so I assembled uh, a team of people to collaborate with around the world, who are historians who not only know about the Spanish flu but can also comment on its cultural history on its medical history its social history but in particular with with reference to questions of remembering how it was remembered and how it was forgotten and how it was rediscovered.
1: Now what tell us something about your your whole aspect of the origins of the Spanish flu Tell us this in terms of your themes regarding remembering, forgetting, and rediscovery?
0: Well, it's a tricky subject because, of course, Spanish is a misnomer. It didn't originate in Spain. Um, And there's explanations for why that kind of word was going around. But the most important thing is already at the time, people knew. Medical uh, personnel and scientists realized it wasn't originating in Spain. It was quite obvious. And there were three main theories from where this pandemic emerges. One was the United States, um, the Midwest of the United States, Kansas, more specifically the area of, um, the area where it would have entered the, the military camps as America was entering into the United, mobilizing for the, for the First World War, and there was an outbreak of, a, of influenza in Camp Funston, in, camp, um, in Fort Riley, and that was a major camp, and encampment where soldiers mobilized from around the country and from there were dispatched to Europe. So that's one possible vector. Um, another... Uh, might be in the Western Front of the First World War, in France, particularly in an area called Etaple, uh, and possibly in British military camps in England, in Aldershot. And there, there was an early outbreak of influenza already in 1916, then 1917. And the question is, was that the original place? And another possibility would be actually China, which has traditionally been the the breeding ground of great pandemics. Um, And if so, then the epidemic would have spread... Uh, with the Chinese labor corps who were labor workers who traveled um, across the Pacific and then across Canada uh, and the United States and then over to Europe to work uh, as laborers in the First World War, and they could have been another vector. And I'm saying these are possibilities because one of the interesting facts is is that despite all the scientific breakthroughs, and there's been major scientific breakthroughs in our understanding of the influenza virus of 1918-1919, the origin remains a puzzle. So it's still a mystery. And in terms of how it's remembered, well, it's quite interesting how different countries claim that it belonged there, almost as if it's a pride. Americans, American historians tend to say that it originated in America. English historians often say it originated in France, Britain. Um, uh, but there is no way of actually knowing exactly where it began. And we even haven't mapped exactly how it spread around the world. That's still work waiting to be done.
1: Now, talking about the spread around the world, tell us the story about the bridge group and the four ladies who play cards together.
0: Well, that's one of many colorful personal anecdotes, um, which relates in a way to how individuals And local communities and families retained a memory of the flu, something we might return to later, as opposed to public memory, which didn't quite preserve these stories. So it's kind of uh, it's a story which was recounted actually by doctors for a long while. I think I traced it back. The first time I've seen it recounted was by um, a doctor in 1991 as part of a tradition that he had heard. And it's a story that a group of four ladies uh, were playing a game of cards, a game of bridge into the night. They're all in good health. Um, until around 11 p.m., they went to sleep, and the next morning, out of four of them, three were dead. Now, what's interesting in a story like this, and many stories like that, is through an anecdote, we're exposed to some of the key features of the virus at the time, its suddenness, how it could arrive from nowhere, and people would be inflicted and would... Be heavily hit. Also, it's aggressiveness. So this combination of suddenness and aggressiveness, which appears in so many stories of people being healthy in the morning and dead by the evening. Um, What this particular story doesn't reflect is the unusual age demographic. We imagine four ladies, we imagine four elderly women playing bridge, but what's unusual about this particular pandemic is that it hit particularly strongly um, young and middle aged adults, kind of age 15 to 45 would be normally healthy. And that's an unusual phenomenon which science is still struggling to explain, but it marks the Spanish flu from other major influenza pandemics, which usually afflict the very, very young babies and the very, very old, the elderly.
1: Contagious diseases and xenophobia. How did xenophobia play a role in this disease?
0: Well, it's a good question, but I like questioning things, even questioning the question. And my first question is, did it? Now, we know that there's a tendency to blame contagious diseases on the other, right? That's throughout history and with many different diseases, um, especially when there's a pandemic. Um And influenza would fall into that category generally. There's a whole series. You can map this, for example, in nicknames. So in Russia, it was known as the Chinese disease. In Germany, influenza was known as the Russian disease. Everybody had their enemy that they didn't like. In Italy, it was the German disease. Um, In the British Empire, it's interesting to see how different colonies and different areas blamed each other. So in Penang, for example, it was called the Singapore fever. These are kind of rivalry areas. In Poland, it was the Bolshevik disease, the disease of these kind of uh, aiming against communists. Uh, In allied countries, they blamed the Germans uh, for kind of planting a kind of biological warfare. In Spain, where it's called the Spanish flu, they didn't call it the Spanish flu in in Spain. Uh, They called it the Naples soldier. So each time kind of blames, that's based on kind of a popular culture, a popular song at the time. So there's this tendency to blame others. But we should be careful about this. And one of the authors in this volume that I edited, um, Samuel Cohen, is an expert on the long duration of epidemics. He wrote a very interesting book on the history of epidemics, kind of from the plague of Athens all the way to AIDS. Um, it's not the topic of what he works specifically in my book. In my in my book, the chapter that he puts in there it relates actually to comparing uh, Spanish flu with the Black Death uh, of the Middle Ages. But just to return to Samuel Cohen, when he did this long history of epidemics, he divided between epidemics of hate, which feature outbreaks of xenophobia, as compared to cases of compassion. And overall, the more you we research the Spanish flu, there were cases of xenophobia. I'm not saying that there weren't. But there were many, many cases where communities gathered together and showed solidarity and helped each other, both within small communities, so it would be poor neighborhoods helping each other, but also charity between neighborhoods uh, and between different areas. And that's quite remarkable. Uh, and that's something to think about, uh, this notion of an epidemic of compassion, perhaps, something which we don't always think about. But now we're more aware of it, of course, of this kind of
1: dynamic. Yes. Tell us now about the media coverage during the 1918 pandemic.
0: Well, th- that's a good question. relates to a few things. So it was often said that this war wasn't discussed, that the influenza wasn't discussed in its time because um, there was a First World War going on. And so there was censorship, and no country wanted to advertise that they're being afflicted by a terrible pandemic because they appear to be weak, and it would demoralize um, the state. We have to be careful about that assertion. To a large extent, it's actually a myth. It explains certain phenomena, for example. It'll explain why, perhaps it'll even explain why um, it's called the Spanish flu, because Spain was a neutral country, and so... The press advertised on front pages the fact that the king fell ill, the prime minister fell ill, that the disease was spreading around Spain. Other countries would be more reserved. However, we should acknowledge this was a mass-mediated, perhaps the first mass-mediated disease. Newspapers featured numerous stories around it, also in belligerent countries, also military countries. I mean, there's a great example, um, the University of Michigan Center of History of Medicine set up this Influenza Encyclopedia. It's available online, and it's a great database of newspapers at the time. And the data shows quite clearly that newspapers, there were thousands of newspaper reports about the flu. And this is replicated around the world. Newspapers around the world covered the spread of flu because of the war they would do it in a more modest way, I'd say, in countries which were taking part in it. It wouldn't be necessarily front-page news. Occasionally, it could be front-page news. Um, It wasn't quite hidden, but it would sometimes be underplayed. People would be asked to show stoicism, to say that they can soldier through it. Um, But if we look through it, newspapers will see that it appears in advertisements, that it appears in between the major newspapers, that there's prominent health notices everywhere, there's cartoons. So actually, there's wide coverage of the Spanish flu, and yet we have this image that it wasn't discussed. So it's a bit misleading, and we have to kind of look beyond the veil of that.
1: Now, public health did provide information for individuals on how to prevent the pandemic. How did the physicians feel medical science?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, because we've got to understand that medical science at the time could not cope with this disease. It thought that it could. Mm-hmm. Medical science entered the... 20th century with a belief that it could solve any disease, that this would be the first modern war in the sense that this would be the first war in history in which more people die on the battlefield than from wounds and diseases, which has always happened throughout history till then. And it seemed that this might be true till this outbreak of this pandemic. Um, And we should realize that medical science at the time didn't know that influenza was a virus. They thought, to a large extent, that it might be um, a, a bacillus, a germ, a bacillus called bacillus, a Pfeiffer's bacillus. Um, so there was a red herring there. They didn't diagnose it properly. They couldn't develop proper medication against it. They couldn't develop a vaccine. So medical science wasn't in a good state, especially when it had this triumphalism behind it, that it could solve anything. And many doctors left the war frustrated Feeling that they were helpless, that they stood and saw people die and could do nothing. I mean, perhaps the most striking example would be Victor C. Vaughan, who was the head of kind of the whole wartime effort in the United States. Um, he was the head of the Division of Communicable Diseases. So he was in the head of the whole responsible for the whole effort of combating um, disease and pandemics in the military. And he prepared for various scenarios, but he found himself completely helpless against this disease. And If you want to see kind of the frustration behind that, then we can see how in his own memoirs, when he gives a lecture to doctors 10 years later, less than 10 years later, he'll gloss over it. And he'll just say that this was too traumatic. Uh, He has these images of soldiers stacked in a hospital in Boston that he saw outside Boston, huge amounts of soldiers just left there to die and nothing could be done to save them. And in a way, he kind of says, let's just put this aside. We couldn't do anything about it. And there are many doctors who repeat this kind of notion, saying this was too much, we're not going to talk about it anymore, we can't deal with it. And yet we have to be careful. One of the themes of the book is medical memory. And we can see that there was an extensive medical memory, um, particularly within scientific research. There were many scientists, uh, medical doctors who became scientists who, after their experience in the flu, became determined to solve this riddle, dedicated their life to researching influenza, to finding some kind of solution. A good example would be Frank McFurlane Burnett in Australia, who ended up winning a Nobel Prize in 1960. Now, he got influenza in 1919, remembered it, and together with a whole cohort of people in various countries around the world, battled and solved to find a way of developing a vaccine to deal with influenza. So there is a memory there. And at the same time, there's a forgetting there. We should be aware of that.
1: Nurses and memories of the flu. Tell us about that.
0: Well, that's a fascinating topic. And here I should credit another of the authors of, of the book, Nancy Bristow, who is the an incredible historian of the flu in the United States uh, and has called attention to the disparity, the difference between the helplessness, in many cases, of the doctors, which I've talked about, and on the other hand, the remarkable benefits of nursing. Now, this plays within a gender dynamic. For years, doctors were predominantly male, especially in this period, and looked down upon nurses as kind of an auxiliary medical, not serious profession. And nurses were predominantly female at the time. Um, And exactly during this pandemic, the value of nursing was shown, became evident, how nurses save people's lives just by making sure that they're rested, that their rooms are ventilated, that they're properly nourished, by giving people the kind of care which will help them pull through and help their own immunization, uh, their own kind of body uh, fight the the, the virus within itself. And the records are remarkable. We find us in different places around the world how people credit the nurses and how, how also nurses played a very a very high price. I mean, one record would be uh, an English doctor, Dr. Basil Hood in London, who writes in his diary how the doctors are falling like nine pins, like bowling pins, are falling all around in his hospital and he could do nothing to save them. And yet they're devoting themselves to helping people in these terrible conditions. A good example would be African American nurses who came empowered out of this, uh, d- d- out of combating the disease. In fact, even African American doctors, uh, black doctors played a key role um, uh, within their communities who hadn't been recognized before. So, in many cases, groups that had been marginalized actually shone during the pandemic. And yet, after the war and after the pandemic, their roles were often relegated to forgetting. They were marginalized once again. And the people who saw themselves responsible for medical memory, often doctors, white doctors, um, neglected to tell this story. And so this is how it's kind of remembered quietly and at the same time forgotten, which is one of the key themes of the book.
1: Well, why do you think people did not want to remember the flu?
0: Okay, well, this is a key question. A lot's been written about it. There's many reasons why... Spanish flu might have been forgotten. And we can give quite a few. I can give just a few quick reasons, kind of just kind of referring to some of the kind of well-known causes. One, flu itself doesn't seem like a frightening disease to many people. In common perception, it's perceived as simply kind of the common cold. It's just the flu. It doesn't have these kind of terrible symptoms of uh, smallpox or some other uh, terrible uh, disease even though it was very aggressive in 1918, 1919, even 1920. There may have been maybe a fourth wave in 1920. Um, on the other hand, we can also talk about the fact there might be an age issue, the fact that it struck middle age to young kind of young adults, whereas the leaders of the world at the time were quite often, it was a paternalistic society, where elderly men. Um, and, and so maybe that was less noticeable in some cases. More than anything else, the First World War overshadowed the flu. And so it was, in the shadows of, it was in the shadows of the great war and war efforts, and people didn't want to talk about it. And after the war, they just wanted to move on and recover and rebuild society, and so many other things were happening. And we can keep adding more and more explanations. Um, one of the key explanations, I would say, is that it, wasn't, it was difficult to politicize a pandemic. We know that something that's politicized and you can put into a narrative of good people and bad people. This is striking people all around the world, the rich, the poor, uh, the development world, the developed world, uh, all around. So it's difficult to kind of weave it into a narrative. However, I'm going to challenge your question. I, with, together with the other authors who worked with me on this project, believe that the main question is actually not why. For every reason why not to remember the flu, we can give examples in history where similar pandemics were remembered. The Black Plague was remembered for a long time afterwards. It's not that pandemics can't be remembered. And for every case that I gave here, we can look again and look how uh, diseases could be remembered and were remembered. I think the more interesting question is not why was it forgotten, because that's an hypothesis, but how it was forgotten. And here we can talk about this a bit more as the interview progresses. I think we have to comment on the fact that it wasn't entirely forgotten that there's a gap between public silence, between official neglect and between private remembrance. The families that suffered losses remembered people in their family who died in different forms, but often not in public, quietly. Local communities which were devastated remembered their loss. It was even written about in literature and in poems, but it didn't make the canon of literature. It was over, it was marginalized by other themes. And that's a topic we need to forget, to to, to address and think about. And that, these two dynamics I call social forgetting and cultural forgetting. And perhaps we'll return to that later because that is one of the big novelties and uniquenesses of this book is in how it charts social forgetting and cultural forgetting around the globe. This is happening in many different societies, in many different cultures, in different ways. But it's a common theme which keeps recurring. And the important point is to realize is that people did remember and yet it was often below the radar and not noticed till it was rediscovered later.
1: Now, tell us a story of the 86-year-old's account of his sister's death.
0: Well, this is just one, again, of thousands of examples that I could give, and I've been researching this for so many years, I really have an archive of examples. But what's particularly telling about this is the man who recorded the story. This is a story that I found in the collections, the archival collections of Studs Terkel. Now, Studs Terkel is an iconic figure in the development of oral history in America and perhaps in the world. Studs Terkel, who for years was a Chicago broadcaster, who just simply talked with people and collected their stories famous people and also non-famous people, just collected lots of stories and wrote books about oral history, popular books, not academic books, but won a Pulitzer Prize, wrote about um, World War II, memories of World War II in his book, The Good, the, the, the Good War, as it was remembered in, in America, who wrote in his book, Hard Times, about the Great Depression, who constantly talked about amnesia and American culture, and we have to remember these stories. He devoted his life to collecting stories uh, of episodes in America that were often neglected. What's remarkable is that in all of his books, in all of his archives, in all of his interviews, I couldn't find him asking people about Spanish flu. And it's remarkable because he was around at the time. He was six years old. His family would have had stories. And yet it wasn't uh, on his radar, so to speak. But in one interview, in 1994, he interviewed 86-year-old Bresci Thompson, who was an Italian-American uh, artist who lived in New York, in Chelsea, New York. And in that story, just briefly, there's one, a couple of sentences in which Bresci remembered his sister, who was called Libertad, Liberty, who in 1918 suddenly died of flu. And she was a a tiny, tiny child. She was a baby. He remembers the screams in the hall. He remembers how his father was too poor. He didn't have money to bury her. But how a janitor, an Italian janitor, came to help, again, when I say this kind of epidemic of... um, Compassion, so it is an example of compassion. This janitor came and buried the child in a macaroni box. I mean, it's pathetic, it's terrible, but it's the sense of community which came together. Um, what's remarkable is Turkle heard this story, noted it down, but continued an interview. Didn't return to ask more questions, didn't ask other interviewees about it. So it's the same time, same time it's this kind of an example of this dynamic which I chart together with my fellow authors. Um, of forgetting and remembering at the same time. It's remembered, but at the same time, it's overlooked. It's marginalized. It's put aside. It's what I would call social forgetting.
1: Now, let's turn to politics. How did the pandemic of 1918 impact the Paris peace talks?
0: It's an interesting question historically. And the man who raised this question most seriously, it's been raised by a few people, was the great environmental historian Alfred Crosby, who is one of the pioneers of the study of Spanish flu. He's one of the two people to whom we dedicated this book to uh, because of their phenomenal role in addressing the historiography of the flu and also um, the memory of the flu. Now, Alfred Crosby wrote already in 1976. uh, He published a book which he originally called Epidemic and War. And the same on the same scale as War and Peace of Tolstoy, right? And he looks at how the epidemic influenced World War One, but also how it influenced the Paris Peace Talks. And he gives a very bold thesis. According to Alfred the, uh, Alfred Crosby, this determined the whole fate of the Paris Peace Talks and perhaps of history for the rest of the twentieth century until today. Um, he notes that Woodrow Wilson arrived in Paris. And was supposed to lead the peace talks towards Reproschma, towards reconciliation, towards the famous 14 points, supposedly. I'm not too sure if that was exactly his agenda by the time he came to Paris. Things had changed since he issued the 14 points. But he arrives in Paris, there's huge expectations, and then he falls ill possibly with the flu. We're not sure about that. Other people in the delegation were struck with the flu. So we know it did impact people. It impacted people in different delegations. Also, those who were more militant, the revanchists in France, were also struck by the flu. So it's not all that clear. But according to Alfred Crosby's thesis, what happened was this allowed the militants to to hammer out the Versailles Treaty, which is a militant, uh, as he sees it, peace treaty. And that leads in the end to German... um, Feelings of bitterness, of course, the familiar story that we know, then to the rise of Nazism and kind of determines the history supposedly. Again, I'd be careful of this kind of determinism of the 20th century. I would say that historians, by and large, were not convinced by the boldness of this thesis. In a way, it's Alfred Crosby who knew he had a great topic. He's the first person to research in a scholarly and thorough fashion the epidemic in America of 1918, 1919, to ask all the right questions and um, realizing that nobody's interested in this, that he has to make a bold statement so people realize this is a big thing. An epidemic which spreads across America becomes a pandemic all over the world, should be a big topic in its own right, but people weren't interested to see it as such. So he had to make a claim that it changed all of history in other ways. It might have, it might have not. This requires much more suddenness. It's very hard to find one cause for the Paris Peace Treaties because other other things happening at the same time. Um, And I think Crosby realized that himself. When he reissued the book later in subsequent editions, he changed the title. And this is very telling. He called it America's Forgotten Pandemic. And that again relates to the theme that this book picks up on, the whole notion of what happens with its memory and its forgetting. Is it a forgotten pandemic? And Crosby, even though he gave this title to his book, knew very well that on the one hand, it's forgotten. It doesn't appear in obvious places, there's no monuments to it. There's no museums to it. It doesn't... The theme that was identified by Alfred Crosby when he changed the name from epidemic and war to America's forgotten pandemic, we're following the story of remembering and forgetting. And Alfred Crosby himself was aware of this. He didn't just call it a forgotten pandemic and believe that it was completely erased from memory. He was aware of this huge paradox which he writes about in the epilogue to his book of how it's officially forgotten. There are no museums to the flu. There are no monuments. At least there weren't prominent monuments in his day to the flu. It was neglected by many, many authors, though there were some authors who wrote about it, but they didn't seem, they were overlooked by the the authors of The Lost Generation who wrote about the war, for example. Um, So it seemed to be officially forgotten. And yet, he was aware of these private memories that so many people had private memories of it. So again, he was really, he didn't have the terms for it, he didn't have the language, but it's what I call in my historical work, social forgetting. It's a way of remembering under the veil of forgetting, these kind of muted remembrances, which are private and local under a veil of oblivion.
1: Now, let's look at the soldiers. Why were the soldiers who died of the flu listed as military casualties? Uh-huh.
0: Well, that's a question that's been noticed by people from all sides of uh, fighting in the army. In the book, it's addressed by with an excellent chapter by Candace Bogart and Mark Osborne Humphreys from Canada who look at Canadian uh, troops and follow one specific case of a soldier who died and how his family uh, charted his memory and his remembrance. But what we should remember is people who served in the military, were awarded a heroic death. Dying from influenza didn't seem to be a heroic death, and so uh, they were recognized as, as as often is, if somebody dies of an accident or a disease or illness in the army, they're seen as. Uh, a a, a military fatality, and in that sense they were given this heroic death as recognized as people who died from the First World War. They appear in monuments, sometimes in, in plots which we can identify by the dates next to a field hospital that it's from flu, but it would be within military cemeteries. It would be reported at home that they died at the battlefield. And often they would be kind of their, their 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 death would be subsumed into the larger memorialization of the First World War. And there was huge memorialization and commemoration of the First World War. This was the first war in which we have maybe maybe the, the Civil War in America, but after the Civil War in America, where memory becomes more democratic, where everybody gets a, a grave with their own name on it, uh, where uh, the, the dead the casualties are listed on the monuments, um, and this huge culture of remembrance overshadowed. The influenza pandemic. This great war, as it was known in its day, um, overshadowed the great flu. And as a consequence, the soldiers, the many soldiers who died of the flu, would be remembered in the end as casualties of the war and wouldn't be remembered. And even in countries, let's say like France, which decided to award a a medal uh, to people who had contributed to combating the flu, to health workers, to doctors, even to nurses. Um, and this is following a tradition which they began in the 19th century in combating cholera. They initiated these medals, but even these medals, nobody recalls them. They're not remembered like the great medals of the of the war and of valor in combat. So even that was neglected and forgotten. It's always seen as secondary. And when people did write narratives of bravery in combating the flu, the language they would use, as Nancy Bristow noticed, uh, is often military language, how they soldiered through and they fought through it. Uh, and so it's this military martial rhetoric which takes over.
1: You know, looking at examples of soldiers, tell us about the soldier who died when he went to Paris on furlough.
0: Well, there were many soldiers who died when they went to Paris on furlough, but I think you're referring to one specific curious example, which again is telling of a larger phenomena uh, and tells us a lot about historiography, not just about history. So I think you're referring to the famous poet, Guillaume Apollinaire. Guillaume Apollinaire, who was Polish originally, and then uh, re in France, was one of the great surrealist poets. He's a friend of Picasso and of all the artists in Paris at the time, and he volunteers for the war. Like many young people of his age, wasn't that young either, of this period, he volunteers for the war and he serves on the Western Front. And it's a terrible war. And he suffers a head injury in the war. And he recovers from um, field surgery in terrible conditions. I mean, he should have died in the war and he recovers. He gets through and he's awarded a medal for this. And he returns on a furlough uh, at the very end of the war. He doesn't know it's the end of the war. And he's in Paris in November. Just before they declare the armistice. And it's a remarkable account because friends of him visit, friends come to visit him in his apartment, and the doorman says, the concierge says, come a bit later, he's not feeling well. And they come back a bit later, and he's dead. He died of flu. After he survived all these things from the war, he dies of flu. And then they go, they want to attend his funeral, and they go to his funeral. And suddenly they realize they can't find the body because so many people are being buried. Death casualties from the war together with people from flu. And in the background, people are shouting uh, and cheering because the war has just ended. And people are writing death to Guillaume William, which is the Kaiser of Germany. And this is Guillaume William, the person who died, this poet. So it all seems almost surreal. But what's remarkable to me about this story is that we know about the story for quite a while, but one of the most prominent places where it appeared was in a work by a great, great historian called Jay Winter, who's one of, who wrote a preface to this volume, to my volume, Pandemic Reawakenings. Now, Jay Winter is the leading historian of memory of the Great War, of World War I. He knows more about the memory of World War One than anybody else. And he had a famous book called Sights of Memory, Sights of Mourning. His first big book on this topic came out in 1995. And he tells this exact story. And you'd think after this story, he would continue to explore the memory of Spanish flu alongside the memory of war. But no, he doesn't return to Spanish flu again at all throughout the book. And this is indicative of historiography in general. People knew that people died of the flu, but they wrote about people who died of the war. Historians of memory who wanted to follow commemoration looked at commemoration of the war, neglected to ask questions about what happened to the memory of the flu. Even somebody as knowledgeable of Jay Winter for years didn't ask these questions till now where he's returning to discuss it and he discusses it in this book, which is setting a new agenda to, apl- to approach these kind of questions.
1: Now, do you think society encouraged forgetfulness of the flu?
0: Okay, so here we, we come to the the key question. The, the the tension between society as well as state, as opposed to individuals, to families, to local communities. Society didn't carve a space for the memory of the flu, of this great pandemic. Um, It didn't, like I say, erect monuments. It didn't set sites of memory for it. There were plenty of sites of memory for the war. None were allocated to the flu. There were no um, memorials, no great monuments, no memorial days. There wasn't even a stamp, even something as banal as that. It wasn't really discussed in following years. We can see, a huge decline when I charted references the flu in newspapers and books and magazines in subsequent years. During the period itself, it was discussed quite a lot in newspapers, less so in cultural magazines. Following years, less and less and less. So society might have discouraged remembrance or encouraged forgetfulness. And yet, private recollections were retained in private spheres. And this is this tension. This is what I call social forgetting, this tension within society, uh, which is difficult to retain memories in this kind of situation. And yet they're retained in different ways. The different place in which these memories are recognized, different circumstances where um, when a new flu epidemic, uh, pandemic breaks out in 1957 and um, and again in 1968, then people begin recalling the previous pandemic of 1918, 1919, and these memories resurface in different forms. Different examples trigger people, and these memories come out. So society didn't encourage remembering, perhaps even encourage forgetting. And in the same way, found this way for different pockets of memory to persist and to emerge and to be rediscovered at different times. And this is what I call social forgetting. And it's a phenomena which is much more wider than we think. I'm demonstrating it here globally through the case of Spanish flu, and I can show it in communities and different traditions around the world. And I've done this in other studies and other topics, but quite often historical episodes, which are inconvenient, which cause us displeasure, which are not, which are traumatic in different ways. Uh, we think they're forgotten because we can't deal with them. They're not really forgotten. They exist through social forgetting and are there to be rediscovered. And their memories are retained in different places. And that's the complexity that this book seeks to address.
1: Now let's move to another part of the world. Who was blamed for the pandemic in Africa and Asia?
0: Well, you're talking about most of the world here, huge parts of the world, and we can continue to other continents as well, because we try to take a global scope with this book. Um, Here, I should particularly credit the pioneering work of David Killingray, who for many, many years has been working on this topic and looking at Pacific Islands and different societies, and he's an historian of Africa. So he wrote a fantastic uh, chapter exactly on this topic. In many cases colonialism was blamed, right? So the the white European colonies were seen to uh, not offer medical aid and support to the subjects of the state. And to an extent, it's true. And to an extent, we should also recognize that there was no medical solution to the flu. Um, There was disparity uh, and many other circumstances were happening, but it was a rise of anti-colonial rhetoric, which you can identify in different places, some places stronger than others. In many other cases, traditional societies reacted through a turn to religion. By the way, this is also true. Um, there's remarkable, if we return for a moment back to the States, there's remarkable traditions, Nancy Bristow writes about them, uh, of blues songs from the South in, in, in the States, uh, uh, of singers who recall how it was the, blue, the, the, the flu was referred to as a biblical plague that brought people together. And in this suffering. So if we return now to um, Asia and Africa, this appears in many cases, uh, particularly in Africa, we'll see a huge emergence of new churches, often through prophecies, often through millenarianism, often through charismatic figures. Some of these churches exist till today, very strong religions. So a turn to religion would be one case, not so much blaming God but actually turning to God during pandemic. And, and that's quite remarkable.
1: Now, in Samoa, tell us about that.
0: Well, S- Samoa is an interesting case because there's two Samoas. We should be aware of this. There's an American colony of Samoa, which is actually spared of the flu because the governor there imposes a full quarantine. It's a tiny little island. It's one of the few places in the world where flu doesn't enter. Okay? And there's a couple of places like that, but really the, the, this plague, was this pandemic was uh, global and arrived to every corner of the world. Um, in Western Samoa, the place was devastated, it really, and the, the flu was particularly aggressive um, to communities, to often to indigenous, in, among indigenous communities, who were susceptible to this virus, uh, and it devastated the island. And what's interesting there is Western Samoa had been a German colony up until the end of World War I, and then it was taken from the Germans and moved to the New Zealand rule. We forget that New Zealand used to have colonies, so there's a colony of New Zealand for a short while. And in Samoa, there's a strong tradition of blaming the New Zealand authorities for not putting in a quarantine as in the American colony, for not offering the same kind of medical aid that they got under German rule, for allowing a boat to come in uh, with this influenza and not taking the, the the proper measures. This became a huge cause when this movement called the Mao Movement later emerged as an independence movement, and their struggle clearly politicized the flu as one of the cases that they had against the New Zealand government. So much so that in the 1960s, an ethnomusicologist called Richard Moyle would travel to Samoa and collect songs. And among the songs that he collected um, would be this kind of group song, a polyphonic song, where the community sing together in harmony. It's a remarkable song. I've heard a recording of it called Fa'ana Noah. And it's about grief and suffering and disaster. But they also blame the governor and the authorities who left them for their fate. So it's also a politicized disease and it's one of the few cases where this disease could be mobilized um, for political purposes. There's a couple of other cases like that.
1: What about India?
0: Uh Well, India is a great case. And again, there's a fantastic chapter by one of the leading historians of India in the world, David David Arnold, who writes about this in in the volume. Um, India, we should first of all acknowledge, is the place that suffered more than any other place in the world from Spanish flu. A lot has been written about the United States and about other countries. The subcontinent of India suffered more than any other place in the world. And the numbers are incredible. David Arnold would go maybe for the more uh, modest safe count, Uh, uh, kind of the minimum kind of count would be 12 million people dying in India alone. Uh, Other numbers go to 18 million. People have talked about 20 million. So India is devastated from the flu. On the other hand, India also has a record of being devastated by one pandemic after another. So it follows into this kind of sequence of many diseases which were striking India, including the plague. Um... And this is happening when also India is stirring towards an anti-colonial independence movement. And so the press for a while try to politicize the flu. They report about it. They accuse the British authorities who are ruling India for not responding properly, for allowing so many Indians to die of the flu. For example, Mahatma Gandhi's a newspaper, Young India, will publish the terrible statistics about people dying from the flu in India. However... This will be quickly overshadowed by other events of much smaller scale, but easier to politicize. So the Jalianwala Bagh Massacre, which often called uh, the Amritsar Massacre in Punjab, when British soldiers opened fire on demonstrators, would have killed much, much less. We're talking about hundreds, possibly thousands, but not millions. Uh, but that is a major cause uh, of anti-imperial complaints of nationalist attention. And so these hundreds of of, of victims uh, will be commemorated, will be remembered, will be written about extensively in the press. And the case of mass death from flu will almost... Be neglected and almost forgotten in that sense. And I can give another case. This happens in other cases. Ireland, a country which I know well because I specialize in Ireland among other cases. And there's an excellent chapter in the book by Ida Milne, one of the leading authorities on Spanish flu in Ireland. Um, Something similar happened. The flu hit Ireland. There was an attempt to politicize this, saying this was brought by the British. There's a war of independence happening at the same time against the British. There's an attempt to kind of blame the British authorities. Um, but this doesn't quite work. Other things are happening. Other events are taking over in commemoration and uh, memory. And it kind of falls aside, the memory of the flu. And it doesn't quite work to politicize it. And also British people are dying from the flu as well. So it's difficult to politicize such a pandemic. And that dynamic recurs again and again in colonial circumstances.
1: Well, we're coming back to President Woodrow Wilson in the United States. He never talked about the flu in the public. So tell us more about that.
0: Well, that's an example of social forgetting. This notion that you don't talk in public about these kind of events. Woodrow Wilson was keenly aware of the flu. Um, He commented in different ways, like you say, like you hint in your question in private. There's different recollections of his. Some might be apocryphal to what extent he commented on the flu or not, but he never went on record. And that is exactly kind of the sentiments and the sensibilities of the time. The notion that you don't undermine the war effort, that you uh, keep quiet about these issues, that you soldier through it. And this even allowed, not only on a federal level, also on a local level, allowed terrible things to happen. A terrible case would be uh, the super spreader event in Philadelphia, which was a mass demonstration in October 1918. a big rally to collect money for war bonds to support the war. And doctors came to the municipal authorities and said, you shouldn't have this. It'll become a super spreader event. But they said, no, this is more important. We need the morale. We need people's support. We need the money. And so Woodrow Wilson would be much in this vein. He'd be aware of the problem, but he knew that he had to motivate soldiers to enlist to... To, 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 to join the army, to travel over to Europe. He needed the war effort behind this. He was aware that the country would need to rebuild itself afterwards, and this will feed itself afterwards. Here we see the seeds of social forgetting and of cultural forgetting. And, and maybe I should distinguish here um, b- between uh, social and cultural forgetting, and I could do that in a minute, but this notion that publicly you don't talk about it, you avoid it, you speak about it very quietly if you do, and very briefly, and yet privately. There are many circumstances where this memory is retained, equally in cultural spheres. What happens is people write about it. Even famous novelists wrote about it. Artists painted paintings about the flu, but it's not their famous work. It's not part of the canon. Other books overshadow it, become much more famous. They go on the curriculum. They're taught. And so it's remembered and marginalized at the same time until moments of rediscovery. COVID-19 would be the exact example how in March 2020, people began looking and rediscover the flu, which is the greatest moment of rediscovery. But for years before that, we can find other moments that I've been charting, and that's what this book looks at, how it was rediscovered in many, many circles, in many spheres.
1: Tell us why the influenza is not ordinarily studied by the social or economic historians.
0: Well, I think that's actually changed in recent years. The field of history of pandemics has really emerged. I've been following this, uh, and it's become much more sophisticated. So it started with medical history. Now it has a lot to do with social history. So I think actually a lot of social historians are engaging with pandemics, and this will only increase after, uh, hopefully, once we overcome... The coronavirus pandemic, but this is a field which people are aware of, and also economic historians. There's people who bring kind of economics and socials to social history together, like Sven Mamelund in Norway in Oslo, who is a demographic historian who follows how flu. Um, seems to be egalitarian, but it's not. The virus attacks everybody, but of course, poor neighborhoods, which are crowded and in weak conditions, would be more susceptible than other places which are more spaced out and are more affluent. So people are studying that. I actually think that the forefront of pandemic studies, including the Spanish flu pandemic, is cultural history. And that's what this book tried to do. It decided to reset a new agenda. I assembled historians from a whole variety of different types of history, and not only history, there's also literary scholars and others and scientists. And we came together um, to really think in terms of cultural history. How is this flu remembered, was remembered by individuals in in their personal memories for years later? even though historians were less interested in that. How is it remembered by communities and local community projects? Um, And there's many examples of that. Um, There's an historian in in, in the book who wrote a remarkable study, Peter Hobbins, about Australia and community projects of rediscovering the flu. And we have other examples. Um, How is it remembered in medicine uh, by medical circles in different cases? And we have a whole series of medical historians like Mark Honigsbaum in England, who was a leading authority, or Jeffrey Resnick in the States, or Thomas Ewing who looks at Russia, the Soviet Union, or Robert Peckham at China. And then cultural histories again. All of this is part of a larger cultural history of remembering and forgetting. And we need to understand, and it's imperative, especially now after COVID, we're beginning to ask ourselves questions. How will we remember COVID? Will it be forgotten? We have a lot to learn from the lessons of looking back at, um, at the forgotten and unforgotten Spanish flu of 1918, 1919.
1: What is the center message you would like to leave with your readers after they finish your book?
0: Well, I think what I would like people to do is to think in a more sophisticated way in what we mean by remembering, and in particular, what we mean by forgetting historical events. We often speak about this two simple terms. I don't like to use the term, for example, collective memory, because a society doesn't remember as a whole collectively. It's much more complicated and it doesn't forget collectively either. It's not that you press delete on your, commun- on your computer and an event is deleted and erased. We have to see, and that's why I prefer to use terms of social remembrance, how different groups compete amongst each other on how to remember within a larger social networks. I use terms like cultural remembrance and how it's reflected and represented culturally. Um, and the same goes for forgetting. Forgetting is a much more complicated phenomena. Often when we say an event was forgotten, it wasn't really forgotten. Because just the fact that we say it was forgotten means it wasn't forgotten because we're aware of it. And then we begin digging. And we, the more we dig into it, we find that it's much more complex cases. And Spanish flu is an excellent example of that. How a popular historian, the second person we devoted this book to, we, we dedicated the book both to, um, to, to, uh, to Alfred Crosby, but also to Richard Collier, a popular historian who in the 1970s did something remarkable. He put ads in newspapers around the world asking who remembers the Spanish flu. And he was inundated by hundreds of responses because people did remember the Spanish flu. Nobody had asked them that question before. Two of the authors in this book had done the same thing when they were much younger, again in the 70s. So they're returning to work they did in the 70s. One is Howard Phillips in South Africa. Um, The other is Jeffrey Rice in New Zealand. They went to old people's homes. They asked people around their country and collected information, collected hundreds of testimonies. But for years, nobody was quite interested in these recollections. Only now it seems so uh, prescient to us. So the question, the first thing to think about is to think in more sophisticated ways about remembering and forgetting. And the other, of course, is to ask questions of people who encountered events and to document it. Because for years, most of the people who we now call survivors of the great flu weren't asked questions. COVID breaks out and suddenly people scramble and look for the last people still alive. But people lived their whole life and weren't asked questions about it. Not by their children, not by their grandchildren, not by society at large, not by historians. And that's another lesson to be learned by looking back at this history of remembering, forgetting, and rediscovering.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. What is the next project you're going to be working on, Professor?
0: Well, I engage with various projects of memory. I thought I'd put aside history of memory and do other things. I also deal with other topics, but I still have a lot to do with remembering and forgetting. There's still more work to be done on the great flu. I'd like to return to look at some of the literature that's been coming out in the last 20 years or so. In popular literature and popular culture, many representations of the flu. We mentioned this in the book. I mentioned the book as well. Um a popular representations of the flu which appeared, and they reflect reception of scientific research and new historiography as it's mediated to the public, often unnoticed because it's not necessarily by famous authors. So that's one project. I'm returning to write about Ireland, which is a, topic, which is a country I'm always committed to. I'm the chair of Irish Studies in Boston College, and so I have a lot to say about Ireland and about remembering and forgetting. So there's much more to be done within this field, and it'll keep me busy for the next few years. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely.